Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The historic uniqueness of Donald Trump's presidency isn't to be found in his legislative acts and accomplishments, and they are more significant than I think a lot of anti-Trump people want to admit. The tax bill, the dozens of executive orders reversing existing policy concerning the environment, national parks, the appointment of hard-right Supreme Court and lower court judges, the general stroking of the plutocrat class, which has formed in America in the decades since Ronald Reagan's presidency, aided by Bill Clinton's dismantling of New Deal controls on speculators and abetted by Barack Obama's bailing out of financial institutions without putting those controls back in place. Almost all of Trump's actions at that level represent long-standing Republican policy, That he was president when these ideas were pushed over the line is just a historical coincidence. If not him, then any of the other Republicans who competed for the nomination in 2016 would have done the same had they won. Now, what's historic is the man's public persona, the way he has smashed what Americans and the world have come to expect is normal presidential behavior, culminating in his infamous remarks about certain countries being, well, you know... Trump's behavior over the last year has inspired millions of words about not just his mental fitness for office, but his mental state in general. A few days before his shithole remarks, the New York Times op-ed pages carried a piece by Bandy Lee, a Yale Medical School psychiatrist, making it clear, in her opinion, he was certifiable. It then was revealed Dr. Lee had been briefing some members of Congress on her diagnosis of the president, whom she has never seen in treatment, nor interviewed one-to-one. Like the rest of us, she is just forming an opinion based on the man she sees on television and in the cyber-social ecology of Twitter, and filtering her impressions through a professional framework. My understanding of the man from the same sources of information is different. My filter is one of class. This podcast will be about class in America in a more mundane and personal way. A confession, if you haven't already guessed. I was born into the upper middle class, professional subdivision. My father was a prominent physician, and I grew up in comfortable circumstances at the Jewish end of Philadelphia's main line. My friend's parents ran mid-sized family businesses, had seats on the stock exchange, were lawyers and doctors, senior corporate executives, and entrepreneurs who rode the post-war economic boom to wealth. In high school, I got to know people who were several classes above us, living on the remains of first Gilded Age fortunes. We sorted ourselves socially at country clubs. The Jews had their country clubs, the Catholics had theirs, and the fallen-on-hard-times wasps had theirs, whose thresholds we Jews were not allowed to cross. I was never a country club type. The year I turned 13, there were quite a few bar mitzvah parties held at Jewish country clubs. Not mine. Mine was at a hotel. And there was something about those places that put me off. It could just be that they were built around the idea of golf as a leisure activity. What a waste of time. It could be that my precociously evolved sense of class in allegedly classless America felt there was something unfair in the non-Jewish 17-year-olds parking cars for tip money on Saturday night. 
By the time I was 17, I had revised that view, by the way. I understood that working a menial gig for cash money was part of becoming an adult, and it worries me greatly that for several decades now, those starter or part-time jobs have been shrinking to nothingness in the U.S. Seventeen-year-olds of my class now take internships for no money. Wrong. If you work, you should get paid. Eventually, my father joined a country club and took up golf, and as I entered my twenties and then thirties, single, drifting a little, I had more than a few Sunday dinners at the club. This confession is my way of establishing bona fides for what I'm about to tell you. What Trump said about certain African countries, about immigrants from Haiti, is exactly what you might hear at any country club, in the locker room, or at the 19th hole bar, or around a big family table with friends and their kids having the Sunday all-you-can-eat buffet. In those circumstances, among people of a similar social caste, and with the unwritten rules of any club, you can say what you like, and it will not be repeated outside the four walls of the clubhouse. When the talk turns to politics, men and women can vent their opinions on matters of politics and foreign affairs and race and immigration. The language used will frequently be exactly the same as Trump uses. The solutions for political, economic, and international problems will be as simplistic, although perhaps not expressed as crudely as Trump expresses his views, but they will be expressed with the absolute certainty of people who have money. At the country club, money is the final proof of all opinions. The motto of the United States is E Pluribus Unum, from many, one. But really, it should be, if you're so smart, how come you're not rich? This country club mindset is not unique to the United States. All over the world, there are clubs with people whose wealth, and it doesn't have to be extreme wealth, buys them extra access to government. Indeed, whose businesses require that access to make sure they get government contracts to build a new office building or hospital or simply pave a local road. But countries where this mindset gains political power are on a shortcut to disaster. My youngest brother did his MBA at a university down south. My father had attended the same institution and had many fraternity brothers, Jewish fraternity, still living in the city. Attendance at my brother's graduation became a family occasion. I flew to Nashville for several days of drinking and, for my dad, reminiscing. I also took part in a conversation that, even as it was going on, I knew I would never forget. My brother had become friendly with a guy from Colombia, whose family had flown in for graduation as well, and at a brunch at an old fraternity brother of my father's home, I got into a political conversation. The man from Colombia was an entrepreneur. Now, don't snigger. Really, he was in business. Viticulture, not narcoculture. And he would certainly have belonged to a country club. I probably drove the conversation recklessly towards Latin American politics rather than just keeping myself to myself, which would have been wise. But some comments made about the best way to deal with political dissent made me press this guy about gross economic inequality in Latin America in general and how dissent was suppressed in Chile. And he condescendingly disagreed with every point I made. He was all for Pinochet and using violent methods on Marxists. Colombia had its own insurgency. I was naive. People didn't want economic justice. They wanted a little bread and security. 
As he spoke, his two sons, my brother's classmate and his younger sibling, took their plates of food and sat at his feet, nodding at his every word. I thought, the lion and his cubs. You know what you do with these Marxist rebels, he asked me, and answered his own question. You strip a few of them naked and bury them on an anthill, and that will be the end of their rebellion. I think one of the reasons I remembered the scene so vividly was how he spoke those words. There was no shouting, no macho posturing. The calmness and utter certainty with which he spoke them was chilling. Another reason I remember the scene, he was the first authentic fascist I ever met. Not by political allegiance, he was Jewish, and the word fascism conjures up the Third Reich, so he would have been offended if I had used the term. But his advocacy of using extreme state violence to suppress dissent and maintain the existing social order can only be called fascistic. He had no problem expressing these ideas because he was in a room where he thought, not unreasonably, everyone was in the same club and wouldn't disagree. The certainty of the clubhouse. In Colombia, the clubhouse was in control. That conversation took place in 1979. The Colombian government finally reached a deal with the FARC, the main Marxist rebel group, in 2016. Many rebel bodies were put to worse tortures than an anthill, and so were government supporters and those caught in between during those decades. So he was wrong. There was no simple solution. You really shouldn't govern a nation by country club thinking. Although it's useful to have an escape plan if you do advocate those kinds of policies, my memory is that this fellow had applied to emigrate to the U.S. He wanted to move his wine business to California. I wonder if he got citizenship. The last time I visited a country club was for my nephew's bar mitzvah a couple of years ago. At the party in the evening after the service, as the disco cranked up past jet engine decibel levels, I retreated from the ballroom to the bar quieter, order to drink. At the far end of the bar was a fellow, not a guest, just an ordinary club member, drinking alone on a Saturday night. The television over the bar had a news channel on, and there was an item about the Iran nuclear deal which was in the process of being negotiated. The well-oiled guy down the far end offered up a pretty blunt commentary on why there shouldn't be a deal, on how Barack Hussein Obama was a Muslim, and a bunch of other unpleasant opinions that, unlike the conversation with the Colombian businessman, I quickly forgot, until Donald Trump became president. His words on the Iran deal and Barack Obama's culpability for signing it dredged up that memory. The language the drunk used and the president used, pretty close. When Trump disparages Haitians and describes African countries as shitholes or shithouses or whatever term he used, when he speaks of pushing the button on his desk to incinerate North Korea or talks of building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico or deporting 200,000 Salvadorans without a thought about how a government would round them up and transport them back, I don't hear the voice of a madman. I hear the loudest voice at the country club. Mar-a-Lago, or Bedminster, New Jersey, or any other club where the nouveau riche who, thanks to the uninterrupted bounty of economic policies in America going back to Ronald Reagan, are now plutocrats. And I think of that Colombian man, so certain and so wrong, and so protected from his errors by his wealth. 
as year two of the Trump regime begins, it would probably be a good idea for everyone to stop looking for grand psychiatric theories about what makes Trump tick. It's insulting to people who suffer from real mental illness. And it might help those who want to resist Trump to accept the explanation for his behavior as something more mundane. America is being governed by a country club bore, not a psychopath, backed up by other members of the club who don't worry that they will suffer if he makes a mistake. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're there, you can make a donation. Please do, to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.